This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court gave high school students something to cheer about this week, a victory for the First Amendment rights of students when they post on social media. By an 8-to-1 vote, the court ruled that a public high school violated the Constitution when it punished a 14-year-old cheerleader for a profane Snapchat rant. The justices said school officials have less power to regulate what students say when they're off campus. And during oral arguments, some of the justices suggested the school went too far in punishing the student with a year-long suspension from the team. You're punishing her here because she went on the Internet and cursed and used a curse word related to what? To her unhappiness with the school and cheering, right? She's competitive. She cares. Uh, She blew off steam like millions of other kids have when they're disappointed about being cut from the high school team or not being in the starting lineup. The rather narrow decision was written by Justice Stephen Breyer, who had expressed concern about a broad ruling by the court. I'm frightened to death of writing a standard. Joining me is First Amendment expert Eugene Volick, a professor at UCLA Law School. So, Eugene, how much of a win is this for student speech? Considerable. Probably not complete, but considerable. The Supreme Court didn't announce a clear rule that says off-campus speech is categorically protected, or even off-campus speech is categorically protected unless it's, say, a true threat of violence or something like that. Nonetheless, the court made clear that, generally speaking, off-campus political and religious speech is protected, even if it might cause some tension or some disruption on campus. And it defined political speech quite broadly. So, for example, the kind of vulgar and non-substantive criticism of the cheerleading program that was involved in this particular statement by the student, that too, the court said, is a form of political speech because it is criticism of the school. So that's quite a significant form of protection. And I expect that in a lot of off-campus speech cases, this case is going to be dispositive to the point that perhaps there won't even need to be any litigation. So the court stopped short of saying there's a categorical rule for off-campus speech. Did they give schools enough guidance for what is and what isn't permissible? No, they did not give the school much guidance. They did set this precedent, this benchmark. So speech that's kind of like this, future school districts and their lawyers will probably realize, you know, if the speech is quite like this, then there's not going to be much of a distinction we can draw. But if the speech is somewhat different, let's say maybe causes somewhat more disruption on campus or maybe is more personalized to particular students or even particular teachers, you know, in principle, a court might reach a different result. You know, this is the way things work often in law, right? Sometimes a court says, here is a rule. But sometimes the court just says, here's our decision, and uh, we're going to leave it to future courts to discern a rule from this case and from other such cases. That's kind of a common law sort of approach, and one that Justice Breyer, who is the author of this opinion, is often quite sympathetic towards. So it will be mostly for lower courts to develop further case law on the subject, but I'm sure they'll take very seriously this decision and will recognize that off-campus speech should usually, generally speaking, be viewed as more protected. And tell us what Justice Breyer said about the vulgarity of the speech here. We know that on campus, schools have pretty substantial authority 
to punish speech because it's vulgar. It's just kind of a way of teaching manners and teaching how to engage in substantive, polite arguments. That's the Bethel School District versus Fraser case. But when it comes to off-campus speech, Justice Breyer's opinion suggested that basically the vulgarity of the message is not going to be particularly relevant, especially when the message is political in some measure. Justice Breyer said he was frightened to write a standard in oral arguments. Does that show in the narrowness of this opinion? Well, yeah. I think that often Justice Breyer likes to have kind of flexible balancing tests rather than clear, sharp, categorical rules. Different justices have different views. Justice Scalia famously was much more in favor of uh, clearer rules. So, yeah, I think Justice Breyer got what he wanted, which is a relatively flexible approach, but one that nonetheless offers considerable protection to student speech. One complication, by the way, is when he said spreading death of writing a standard, um, uh, I think what he meant was a relatively clear standard, which sometimes lawyers call rules or law professors call rules. Sometimes you have this rule versus standard debate where some people say we need to have a clear, sharp rule. And others say we need to have a flexible case-by-case standard. And Justice Breyer's uh, approach, notwithstanding his, uh, his oral statement as oral argument, uh, really does represent what law professors would often call a standard, but one that is deliberately flexible and in some measure un- not entirely predictable. Justice Thomas's dissent, what was his objection? Well, recall that Justice Thomas is the most originalist of the justices, and uh, in some respects, when the original meaning is not that clear, one who's particularly focused on tradition. Uh, And as a result, he sometimes reaches very speech-protective positions, and sometimes really quite speech-restrictive positions. Uh, In the Morse v. Frederick case, he made clear that as he understands uh, the original meaning, at least of the 14th Amendment, uh, and, uh, which, of course, incorporated the First Amendment against state and local governments. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the public schools basically had a very broad authority over student uh, speech, including off-campus speech. So he's sticking to that. His view is, you know, whatever, doesn't matter what we think is right or what we think is consistent with broad First Amendment theory. Uh, the important question is, What is the best we can tell about the original meaning and the tradition here? And he reads the original meaning uh, of the 14th Amendment as basically uh, leaving such broad authority to schools. By the way, uh, in this respect, he is very similar as in some other areas to Justice Hugo Black, who was also something of an originalist, although generally he was seen as on the liberal wing of the court, whereas uh, uh, Thomas is seen as a conservative originalist. But on various issues, such as incorporation of the Bill of Rights, but also in this uh, in this case, uh, um, uh, 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 K through speech, Justice Thomas and Black actually had very similar views. Uh, Justice Black was the one dissenter in, uh, or no, I shouldn't say one dissenter. He was one of the dissenters in the Tinker v. Des Moines case back in 1969. To be sure, he didn't focus on original meaning as much, uh, but. Uh, 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 it, uh, at least as to the bottom line, Justice Thomas's view and uh, very liberal Justice Black's view were quite similar uh, on this issue. As far as the, the fact that this was social media, was there a struggle to um, for the justices to adjust to the idea or to deal with the idea of social media and the 24-hour nature? 
You know, I don't think so. I think the justices are pretty acquainted with social media. Social media may be new in the in an absolute sense, uh, uh, but uh, it's uh, loomed so large in our minds that I don't think anybody is kind of puzzled or uncertain about uh, uh, about uh, how it works and uh, how it fits in the First Amendment analysis. Remember, in the Packingham case several years ago, the court. Uh, uh, upheld the rights there even of uh, people with uh, um, sex crime convictions to use uh, social uh, use social media. So the court wasn't much detained by that. Now, I suppose one could um, uh, think that, social, that the social media nature here, or more precisely the internet nature of the speech might affect things because uh, uh, speech that is re- written off campus if posted on social media or for that matter, just on the internet more broadly, can be read on campus. And that's one thing that Justice uh, um, Thomas mentions, uh, that because off-campus speech uh, made through social media can be received on campus, that often will have a greater proximate tendency to harm the school environment than will an off-campus in-person conversation. So there is some element to the social media or the internet nature of the speech that affects matters slightly, but the bottom line was that the court didn't treat this any differently than if she had uh, been uh, giving a political speech at a rally or if she had been uh, uh, preaching a lay sermon. Not that presumably she would (laughs) have the same topic or the same choice of words, but on some religious topic uh, uh, in a church. So now lower courts are going to have to grapple with this flexible approach. I do think lower courts are going to be seeing a lot of these cases. And some of them, I think, are going to involve, I hate to use the term bullying because it's so ill-defined. It seems like it's clear, but it's ill-defined. And by the way, Justice Alito mentioned one of the problems with attempts to restrict harassment and bullying is precisely that they're such ill-defined terms and it's not clear whether they match up with any First Amendment exception. But there presumably would be some cases where there is basically personal cruelty posted online about fellow classmates. Another example might be what if there's something that is personally insulting to a teacher and perhaps on a less substantive point or let's say insulting the teacher but calling the teacher ugly or spreading rumors about their sex life with other adults or something like that. So that might be a question that will arise. Plus also, there are going to be lots of cases that involve on-campus speech. It's not like on-campus speech is entirely unprotected. And much of the reasoning of the court suggests that indeed the Tinker Standard needs to be often read in a uh, speech protective way, even on campus. So you may recall some years ago, there was this case called Dariano from the Ninth Circuit, which involved students who were wearing American flag t-shirts. And this was on Cinco de Mayo, and some Mexican-American students viewed that as insulting, sort of threatened that there might be some fights as a result. The school said, you can't wear American flag gear on Cinco de Mayo to an American school. This led to a sharp split between the judges on the Ninth Circuit, although the Ninth Circuit upheld the restriction on the wearing of American flag gear. But it is a classic example of what outside of school would be called a heckler's veto, where speech is suppressed simply because some viewers are offended and threatened to react violently or disruptively. So that kind of issue is going to keep coming up, and it's not clear how it'll come out. It's not like this case will affect it that much. But the broader speech cases will continue to involve a lot of on-campus speech as well as off-campus. So now, were you surprised that this was 8 to 1? You know, uh, uh, it was hard to tell from oral argument just how the, the breakdown would happen, in part because it was hard to tell from oral argument 
just how broad or narrow the rule would be. Uh, so I don't think that this is entirely predictable, but neither was it uh, entirely surprising either. Uh, I do think that people who listened to oral arguments saw that there was a good deal of unease on the justice's part with the, the government having basically 24-7 control over tens of millions of uh, public school students. Uh, so some degree of protection uh, uh, for that kind of off-campus speech, some extra protection beyond what's offered for on-campus speech, I think seemed pretty likely. And then I think one reason it was 8-1 to one was precisely because it was a relatively minimalist decision. There might not have been eight votes or perhaps not even five votes uh, for a more categorical rule. Has there been a definable trend in school speech cases since the landmark Tinker case that allowed students to wear black armbands to protest the Vietnam War? Conventionally, this is seen as the fifth major student speech case since Tinker, so that's in over 50 years. So the Tinker case was viewed as expanding free speech rights because before Tinker, it wasn't clear that students have any free speech rights with regard to their school. Then in the Fraser case, the court said, well, but it doesn't apply to vulgarity, on-campus vulgarity. And then the Kuhlmeier case, the court said, well, it doesn't apply to student newspapers that are run by the school because that's really the school's speech and not just the student's speech. And then in the Morsi Frederick case, the court said, well, it doesn't apply to speech that without making any political or religious statement seems to advocate the use of drugs because that's particularly dangerous in a school environment. So those three cases, you might view them as cutting back in some measure on student speech rights or perhaps defining student speech rights in a relatively narrow way. Now, this case comes around and this case does offer protection for student speech rights. So as in many areas, you know, some cases come out one way, some cases come out the other. Finally, you wrote an amicus brief in this case. How on target were you? Well, our brief uh, um, urged the same result, urged that uh, off-campus speech be viewed as pretty broadly protected. And it stressed the danger of allowing schools essentially 24-7 control over student speech. And that's, that is indeed the view the court took. On the other hand, what we were arguing for was actually a more categorical approach. We thought that there would be more reliable protection for student speech and, for that matter, more reliable protection for uh, school discretion. If the court were to say, look, we're going to say such speech is categorically protected off campus, subject perhaps to some categorical exceptions for things like personal cruelty or threats and the like. But, you know, uh, we wanted a more rule-based approach. That's not what the majority settled on. As always, thanks so much, Eugene. That's Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA Law School. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Should a police officer be able to follow you into your home without a warrant if he suspects you of committing a minor crime like playing the music in your car too loud? The answer from the Supreme Court is no. The majority opinion written by Justice Elena Kagan balanced law enforcement interests against the sanctity of the home, something she talked about during the oral arguments. If you look at our Fourth Amendment cases, you read them as a group over and over and over, uh, they all talk about the home as the, the sacrosanct place, the place of greatest protection. Everything else is compared to that and found uh, not to be quite the thing that the Fourth Amendment protects. Joining me is former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. Let's start with the basics. What does this decision stand for? 
Well, the decision actually stands for the fact that the exigent circumstances exception to the search warrant requirement is limited to basically felonies. The court ruled there's not a categorical exception. It's going to be determined on a case-by-case basis. So the decision really is yet one more attempt to narrow and specify the circumstances under which the police can enter a home without a warrant. Tell us about the defendant in this case. He was suspected of playing loud music in his car and honking his horn for no reason because there was no one around. And that struck the California Highway Patrolman in Sonoma County as suspicious, as well it might. And the officer um, followed the individual, lit him up, attempted to pull him over. And of course, he was literally a few hundred feet from his home. So the suspect drove into his driveway, into his garage, and immediately attempted to close the garage door, knowing that a a highway patrolman was right behind him. So he was very much fleeing apprehension. He was fleeing an arrest, and the officer pursued him, stuck his foot under the door. It was an automatic door, and the door popped back open, and he entered the garage. And as soon as the officer did that, that's when he could smell alcohol and did the field sobriety test and arrested the individual for drunk driving. But at that point, he'd entered the garage without a warrant, and that was the issue before the court. Is that circumstance, a fleeing suspect, is that automatically an exception to the warrant requirement in the court? 9-0 held it's not. But are there circumstances where misdemeanor hot pursuit does entitle an officer to go into a home? Yes, the court unequivocally both Justice Kagan's majority opinion and Chief Justice Roberts' concurring but really dissenting opinion both say that there are circumstances under which a fleeing misdemeanor, someone who's committed a misdemeanor, not a felony, a less serious offense, the police will be justified in chasing that person into the home, which, as we all know, is the place where we get the highest protection under the Fourth Amendment. A man's home is his castle. So the court clearly says it can, in some cases, occur But the majority is not inclined to make a categorical rule. They're saying to the police, it's going to be on a case-by-case basis, and we'll determine each case as it comes before us. And the problem with that, of course, is it doesn't give the police any true guidance. Police like to have what we call bright lines. They like to be told if you initiate a traffic stop or you're trying to arrest the person in public, and the person flees in the private property, you may pursue. And that was, of course, what the appellant was arguing. The court rejected it, said, nope, it's not going to be automatic. It's going to be determined on a case-by-case basis. You mentioned the concurrence by Chief Justice John Roberts, joined by Justice Samuel Alito. And really, it was more like a dissent. Well, it's an interesting opinion because, as you correctly point out, it reads like a dissent. It's very critical of the majority's refusal to endorse the officer's actions, which the chief justice seemed to feel were reasonable. Remember, the touchstone of legality, police action under the Fourth Amendment, is reasonableness. If the police are acting reasonably, they legitimately have no alternative, probably no time to get a warrant. Then they don't need a warrant. They can act to protect people's lives and do effective law enforcement. But the chief justice was concerned that the court was basically excluding a whole area of legitimate law enforcement and that it was going to make it very difficult for the police to do their job because the chief justice has clearly 
from his opinion, he has a tremendous amount of concern and he's concerned that police be given sufficient flexibility so they can do their jobs in the field. His opinion set out some circumstances under which basically a hypothetical, as he did in the last case that we described involving the seizure of the guns from the house, a chief justice set out, it was interesting hypothetical, he said, suppose a policeman sees a suspect he believes is committing a crime. He's not sure, by the way, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony. And then one of the things that the majority opinion does is to draw a clear line between felonies and misdemeanors and pointing out that misdemeanors are less serious, which they're, they're less serious, and they are multiple numbers the Chief Justice was pointing out. Well, you know, sometimes when the police are trying to arrest someone for committing a crime before them, they don't know whether they've committed a felony or a misdemeanor or how the DA is going to charge it. They only know that that person is a suspect and probable cause to believe that a crime has occurred. And the hypothetical was the police officer pulls up to the front of a yard and he sees an adult assaulting juvenile. That would be probably a misdemeanor. And he jumps out of his car and the suspect, seeing the police officer, and now, of course, having read the latest Supreme Court opinion, knows that he can flee because it's only a misdemeanor. And he takes off and he jumps over a fence on the property that is his. And at that point, he says to the cop, go away, I'm going inside, and I'm not letting you in. And the chief justice's opinion said, under those circumstances, with today's opinion, that's all the police officer can do. I mean, he can go, I suppose, and try to get a warrant. But at that point, where's the suspect going to be? And he may, in fact, not stay in the house. He might flee the house. So it handcuffs the police, this, this opinion. George, let's look at our own hypothetical to see how this decision might play out on the ground. Let's say it's a drunk driving case. By the time the officer gets the warrant, there may not be evidence of drunk driving anymore. An excellent point. Exactly right. The evidence in a drunk driving case is resident in the individual's body. That's alcohol that's being dissipated at a certain rate. And if the police have to wait two hours and in the middle of the night, even in large urban centers, it can take a long time to get a warrant. Chief Justice Roberts covered that point as well. And at that point, the evidence may be gone and you may not be able to successfully arrest and prosecute the person for drunk driving. So that's yet another example, though a few years ago, the Supreme Court actually did reject that rationale in in holding that when someone was arrested for drunk driving, they needed to get a warrant before they pulled the blood from the suspect that that the suspect did not agree to have the blood drawn. What was the point of, they said it during the oral arguments, I think it was Alito, hot pursuit has to be hot and it has to be a pursuit? This whole notion of hot pursuit as opposed to lukewarm pursuit, what does that really mean? Are we grading the severity of the crime and we're saying, well, if it's a misdemeanor and it's a a trivial offense, and some misdemeanors in the court listed some details, you know, cutting a plant on public land without an appropriate permit is a misdemeanor. And if you simply walked away instead of running, would that be hot pursuit or lukewarm pursuit? No, these are blurry lines that police are going to have a hard time discerning. The short answer is when the police have probable cause to stop and arrest someone or cite them and they are acting within their lawful authority and they say to the person, stop, sir, or they they do the traffic lights, before this case, that person had to stop. And in California, if that person continues on, they flee, whether they're walking, running, or they jump in a hot air balloon, that's fleeing, and this would justifiably be within their rights to stop that individual. And before this case, would probably be justified in going into their house to arrest them, but not now. Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurrence, basically said there's not that much difference between what 
Justice Kagan wrote and what Chief Justice Roberts wrote. What did he mean? Because it seems like there is a difference. Well, it's an interesting point that Justice Kavanaugh is making, because what he's really saying is when all this boils down and distills to its essence, which is to say an objective, was the police behavior objectively reasonable? In most cases, he's suggesting, and he may be right, uh, the police are going to be justified in entering the house to affect the arrest if there are a whole list of other factors present. You know, remember, uh, exigent circumstances up to now included preventing uh, evidence from being destroyed, capturing a fleeing felon who presents a danger to, to the community. So there were lists of things in the case law that police could do. And Justice Kavanaugh is saying, when the case-by-case approach, which is articulated by Justice Kagan in her majority opinion, when that's fleshed out at the end of the day, it's going to be the same result as the Chief Justice suggesting that the police action will be legitimate. But here's the problem. The police aren't going to know when they take that action at the time, whether ultimately when the courts second-guess their behavior, it's legal or not. And the concern of the Chief Justice is having that out there, having that uncertainty, and given the, how difficult it is to make these snap judgment decisions in real time in the field where you don't have the luxury of uh, oral argument and time to contemplate, um, it's going to impair and impede the police. They're going to err on the side of caution and let the suspect go. So in future cases, how do you think the lower courts are going to handle this? Do you think that there's enough guidance for them in the majority decision? No, I agree with the Chief Justice. I think the point that he's making is a very good one, which is we really do need a bright line test here. Uh, We need more guidance. We need it clear that the Drawing the line between a felony and a misdemeanor is not really relevant. If the police are acting in a lawful fashion, enforcing the law, it shouldn't matter whether it's a a traffic law they're enforcing or the suspect is believed to have uh, committed a violent felony or a robbery. They should be uh, authorized to act, and and we should be erring on the side of of the police, which is what the Chief Justice is suggesting. Uh, Justice Kagan is suggesting, no, they need to stop. They need to... They can't go into that house. That house is sacrosanct. So this only applies to police chasing a suspect into a home? Well, two things. First, it really only applies when when they're going into the home because that's the highest level of Fourth Amendment protection. The second thing is um, it isn't really going to alter the fleeing felon rule previously. Most of these police chases where they're they're chasing the suspect the person is believed to have committed a felony, and that really was a categorical approach. It didn't matter what the felony was. If you had probable cause and you're trying to arrest someone for committing a felony, um, that was exigent in circumstances categorically, and that question was decided. The irony of this decision is that almost throws some of those pursuits into doubt as well, because the courts are going to look at all the other circumstances. Well, this was a felony, but this person was a white-collar. Maybe the person was a white-collar offender, okay? Businessman, and he's not posing a danger to society. So I suspect that as the courts grapple with applying this decision in real-life circumstances, it's going to cause a lot of trouble, and there's going to be greater uncertainty. And uncertainty in law enforcement is a bad thing. We want policemen and agents to have guidance from the court so they know what their behavior 
should be to be lawful under the circumstances. And that's the problem with the opinion. From this opinion and the last opinion that we discussed, the officers going into the guy's house, does that tell you which way the court is headed in these cases or not? It does. It, it sends a remarkable signal. Again, this was a 9-0 decision. The court is making every effort to, to be unanimous, even when, ironically, as in this case, they really weren't. Um, but you know, it, it, I think it's showing that the court is really taking the Fourth Amendment very seriously and trying to give the greatest protection for individuals who, once they get in their house, that's, that's safe ground, um, absent a warrant. And the court is sending that signal that... Um, we're going to look at any incursions into into the castle uh, with great scrutiny and, and be and be forewarned. Thanks for being on the show, George. That's former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.